This is season five, episode number three of Beyond the Illusion. In this episode, we have a conversation with David Solomon. David has written a book called Magic is Real, how to create reality, manifest miracles, and make spirituality fun again. He also operates the website MagicalGoldenAge.com. He has over 22 years of experience as a magician and has studied and practiced in Hermetic, Kabbalistic, Wiccan, Taoist, Vedic, Tibetan, Yogic, and Shamanic traditions. On top of all that, he's an intelligent conversationalist and it was a lot of fun listening to his unique perspective on current events and much larger topics that we cover in this conversation. So let's go to that conversation with David Solomon, Tiana Roser, and myself, Tim Howe. Checking out the website. It's very interesting. I guess my first question is, how did you get into all of this stuff? And how did your spiritual journey begin? Was it at a young age in your life? Or was it later on? Well, Tim, I... It's interesting when you talk about chronology, because I could talk about when I was five and obsessed with magic and so knew the truth of real magic that the fake stage magician with the lowercase I'm a Burger King was doing such a bad job. I remember at my birthday, slapping him on the face, calling him a fool and going back to my table. And I remember, you know, 12 astral projecting, 13, having a very powerful anti-bullying spell, 14, you know, healing people with a very rich level of Reiki. So when people ask when I got started, when I felt really drawn to dive into this world, you know, I used to say when I saw the movie The Craft and thought, oh, I could learn, you know, magic and levitate and shoot fireballs and getting deeper into spirituality in my early teenage years, I never thought the answer would be earlier. You know, fives, like kids are interested in magic, you know, that isn't really a life path. When I had a really powerful awakening, I feel that I had a series. I recovered memories from hundreds of thousands of years ago, just so many lifetimes beyond human lifetimes. So my perspective of reality is that my soul's journey, this life, is to discover, improve upon, and teach the real magic of this world. Chronologically, in that this life, when that started, like technically that was 12, but just like some people feel they're born to be an expert level violinist or a world-class triathlete, I've just always known in my DNA that this is a core part of my identity. And I feel that that, that expansive knowing is much more meaningful than like a number in a life event, even though there's a lot of those. So you use the term real magic a couple of times there. And so I'd love to hear what your definition of real magic is, you know, as opposed to fake magic. Yeah, for sure. So I'm increasingly taking in a research science-based approach for as much that modern science can show with the sensitivity of instrumentation. So my base definition of magic, which I talk about in my first book, Magic is Real, and online and all over the place, is essentially influencing the shape and form of reality through consciousness. Stage magic is, you know, card tricks, illusions, slate of hand, stuff like that. It isn't really changing reality. It's doing something that surprises or confuses people. Magic with the capital M as an umbrella term, you can talk about energy healing and call that magic because it's science we don't understand. But then you study the science of biophotonics, cellular communication through light and between living organisms. And you're like, oh, wow, a lot of energy healing isn't magic. It's just you know, a type of science like undoing fascial adhesions and massage. So paradoxically, the magic as I define it becomes less magical the more we understand it. And it's the frontiers of consciousness for how consciousness can affect reality to the degree we can understand. So taking out you know, the scientific instruments, the paths of shamanism, of witchcraft, hopefully light side, but everything has polarity, of ceremonial magic, of practical Kabbalah, of Tibetan Buddhism, of all the things that really intentionally 
owns this, not just visualization and manifestation and law of attraction stuff. That that stuff is great. I call that like entry level magic, but really like the hardcore summon and banish a storm, heal somebody from the brink of death. You know, that's the powerful inspirational stuff that's almost akin to settling Mars in the Western science world that I feel is worthy of note for where we could head to as a civilization if these expanded human capabilities, as NASA or the CIA might call them, were more commonplace. Yeah, I completely agree. When you mention things like that, it brings to mind like some thoughts that I've been having a lot recently, which is these kind of things, they happen occasionally. They happen rarely. I'm sure, you know, people report of miracles, you know, here and there. You hear these stories all through history because occasionally they did happen at some point. So if our consciousness is that powerful, if we have these abilities, don't you think that working together would magnify these abilities and make these things happen more easily and more regularly? And I do think about that a lot. And I don't know why it's just been coming up a lot recently, but I think that's eventually where we have to go if we want these things to really take off. We can't just do them individually. I think it requires a cohesive action. You know, it doesn't make sense if we can just do them all independently anyway. It makes sense if we do them together. So on your website, you're teaching people how to do magic, right? It's uh, something like you teach realistic expectations and grounded scientific teaching. And I was, I was really curious, kind of wanting to know more about that. Like, you know, what would be like realistic expectations for, you know, if somebody were coming to you brand new to all of this, like, how do you go about teaching them or what's realistic for someone to experience, say, in like six months of working with you or something like that? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So if you take a common metaphor, like working with a personal trainer, say once a week versus twice a week versus just going to the gym kind of aimlessly following this YouTube video or that, the differences can be massive, right? They can be huge. For years, I struggled with fitness. When I started working with trainers off and on, I refined my approach off and on. When I started working with somebody twice a week, I really saw progress and had so much clarity. And I said, what's a realistic expectation for my goal at that time was 12% body fat and similar muscle and other things. And he said about you know six to eight months. And I think for any significant change in our life and our abilities, we need to know where we're at, why we're not farther, what roadblocks we could hit in the magic field. It's aspects of you know trauma to be healed, persistent energy blocks, persistent health issues that can be corrected, disorganized elements of the personality causing, you know, compensation patterns or avoidance or lingering PTSD. And so clearing that stuff up, almost like clearing up a persistent like muscle dysfunction and PT after somebody breaks a leg, that can take a little time. But just like running, once you clear up any knots in your legs, you can run faster, longer, farther somebody's ability to impact consciousness goes up dramatically the more often they work on it. So if somebody to work with me, say once or twice, well, it's, you know, double difference. So say once a week for six months, I'd say they, they would definitely feel clear of the most major emotional blocks and personality dysfunctions and lack of clarity on why they hadn't had, you know, successful romance or finance in their life or, you know, persistent themes that seem incongruous with their soul. I think they would also get a clear understanding of the best method for them to impact reality. You know, when I was a teenager, it was rituals and calling in the corners of the elements and summoning gods and goddesses and angels. Now, you know, over 20 years later, I have a very abstract quantum embodying the divine, expansive practice to manifestation that's a lot simpler than all that all those bells and whistles i don't feel like i need those anymore but that confidence and proficiency was from extended practice so taking you know six months like getting stuff into muscle memory and getting clear just like any new career or going from any major life, life shift like not married to married once that adjustment period is made and somebody's more in this identity or maybe more in an advanced identity if they've already been an adept for a while. The next six months is really finding one's own path to mastery. So a lot of world-class people practice their art three hours a day at least. 
that's not to say that's necessary for you know a mastery of, of magic, even though that's my own personal practice because that's my own path. But I think if somebody wanted to get clear on what would it take to manifest X or Y or Z, they'd be able to have a clear enough formula of what was needed and at the end of a training have their own initiative, their own will, their own convictions and knowledge to be on that path to, you know, say, cast that spell successfully. I think that's really important. We talk about graduating from primary school to be an independent adult as like a, a general traditional path, even though fewer people are taking it, you know, the college route. So I think rebuilding somebody's faith in themselves and proof of themselves that they can build their own abilities and skills, mystical psychic healing and otherwise, and they have enough of a of a grounding and a platform to keep expanding, that's a big goal of mine to get people independent and not need consistent healers and teachers and coaches, even though it's always great to improve. Having those strong foundations and anchorings is a big goal of mine. And yeah, Tim, from an earlier comment, I agree with you that, you know, group magic and group intention really can amplify the effect. The Global Coherence Project is evidence of that. Dr. Joe Dispenza's group coherence healings and people with like major terminal cancer and uh, Alzheimer's and paralysis and all this bad stuff getting healed is a testament to that. I think really it, it comes down to our ability to measure what's happening during the practice of manifestation under whatever system and to have enough, I, honestly, I would say disclosure of how the human electromagnetic and quantum fields affect the collective fields of reality. Like it's much easier to levitate oneself in private than to levitate the Statue of Liberty with the whole world watching. Not to say that the latter isn't possible, but for the collective manifestation that goes into the weather and wars and all this other stuff to be put to a constructive use, like let's regrow the rainforests, let's DNA mutate some species to restore species that went extinct, Let's restore the atmosphere with some massive lightning storms, like big things like that that could help our world. I think that'll take a concentrated effort. And a book I have in the works called The Shamanic Economy talks about that in the extent of once AI takes care of most jobs that most people don't like, can we live harmoniously enough to pool our collective intentions together and achieve some massive stuff like that? Yeah, I think that's part of what's coming to the surface of the collective consciousness right now is that are we headed towards a place where we're going to eliminate those those tedious things that people have to do right now? Like, because you see this thing happening called the, you know, they're calling it the great resignation, you know, where people aren't doing jobs they don't like doing anymore, you know, and it's it's just as simple as that. Like, people are trying to find all these complicated explanations for it, but what it comes down to is that people don't want to do certain things, and they're not doing them anymore. So they're refusing to do them, which is good in a way, you know, it's, it has certain consequences for both their personal life and for everyone else's. But at the same time, it's good that they're taking a stand. It's actually a good thing that people are saying, no, I don't want to do that. But yeah, like you said, like, how are we going to move forward? How are we going to manifest in an individual lifestyle where we have our needs met and we don't have to do those tedious things? I think that's that is a problem that we can overcome. It's not a problem that one person can solve. You know, it's like an, a collective thing. Like everyone's going to have to to be involved in that process. And and I like how you describe your process of helping someone as kind of like a foundation up sort of thing. Like you're clearing blockages, you're you're healing wounds, and then you're moving on to the bigger things. Is that sort of your path that you followed? Is because I'm wondering when you're describing how you're helping someone, like how you came in possession of all this knowledge on how to help someone, you know, like, did you go through that journey yourself and then you're kind of leveraging that for other people or how did it work for you? Yeah. Um, yes to all the above many times. Uh, I've been through many spirals of healing and strengthening and practicing and dark night and hero's journey. Um, I've had a lot of teachers and mentors and classes and retreats and workshops and like a quarter million dollars invested in personal growth, honestly. And I love to save people the time and the effort that I put in. I mean, that's how generation by generation we, we evolve and learning from people who came before us. That's something I continuously do. I feel like 
we're all lifelong learners as much as we would choose to be. That's kind of a necessity at the moment, unless we want to just live an isolated cave-based life. There's a certain joy in going through a path and then supporting other people who are going through things that I successfully surpassed. And there's also an interesting synchronicity where sometimes I'll overcome something and then immediately somebody will apply for mentorship in that exact category, which I just overcame after like two, three, four years. And then they have that question. That's that's really exciting. And that's really, you know, they say the best way to learn is to teach. So, you know, we can learn in receiving and learning by giving, you know, reinforces that knowledge, almost like a life test or a pop quiz. I can relate to that a lot as far as within my practice that happens, that we attract those that are, you know, working on things that we've worked through. What about, past, so you mentioned past lives. Did you, do you have any like past life recall of kind of doing magical work in other lifetimes? Yeah, pretty significantly. There was a time period in the history of human civilization where we talk about Atlantis. And I think there's a general consensus in the magical communities and in the Western open minded communities that this was an advanced civilization that went a bit too far and destroyed themselves and sunk. I think there's common threads that most of human civilization was living there, that it was kind of like a conglomerate, like Lemuria before it. And it feels like most people on this path have ties to that civilization. There's a lot of different past life memories I have and I can access, I feel like almost all of them, human and non-human in different eras. And while there were a lot where I was in a wizard or a witch or an apprentice role, what I remember from Atlantis was very, very powerful, pivotal point in my own journey. And it was a society where magic and technology were so commonplace that it wasn't something separate like here. Two, three hundred years ago, actually, I, I should learn my industrial revolution history. At the, at the dawn of the electric age, when electricity was starting to come online, and it was only the rich who had electricity, and before then it was only the crazy inventors, and then half of them burned themselves to death. They were the eccentric minority. Now it's pretty ubiquitous in a lot of areas to have electricity. But yeah, sir, there's a big chunk of the world that doesn't yet, but it was almost similar for that age of magic where it was just consciousness and technology so well understood and so well interwoven so I've, i have a lot of memories of being in tune with where we're at on the continuum of integration of consciousness and impacting reality and a lot of the past lives are fun you know if you think about it we get flashes of past lives not necessarily the whole thing we need to maintain our own identity so if we're ever in a crisis we don't have flashbacks of being Napoleon or Cleopatra and just like lose our shit. So the flashbacks I have were like pivotal moments from each lifetime. And I could go, you know, rewind and fast forward to them and, and see the whole thing if I really needed to. But it's almost like memories from childhood. You know, you have strong memories that shaped you and other ones might come up as, as they're relevant, but you know, it's more like anchor points. So given that you were saying about most of the magical community kind of having roots in Atlantis, and we all know how that ended, or most people know, <laughs> I'm just curious, do you think that our consciousness has evolved enough now that, because I don't know about the magical community at all, but like when you look at it now, do you think that it's evolved enough that it'll end differently this time? You know, you say end differently. There's patterns in history that repeat themselves, but I don't feel like actual events repeat themselves in the exact same fashion. I think patterns of energy and ages and yugas and spiraling lines of history and economy, I think we, we see those you know, in cycles and sine waves, countries and civilizations rise and fall for all sorts of reasons. So the arrogance and darkness that led to Atlantis's fall, you could say was on behalf of the Atlanteans, you could say it's because of a universal sine wave cyclical energy that it was just its time. And whether time for our civilization is 100, 1,000, or 10,000 years from now, you know, that's, that's yet to be recorded. So we're not in the timeline we were in then. We have 
different technologies, different cultures, different customs, different connections with, you know, off-world life. Whether we learned a lesson from that or not, I think one of the most important things is to be anchored and grounded in the reality we're in, the age and era we're in. You know, what are the challenges we face? What are the opportunities we face? And just what are the energies of universal consciousness? I feel like if somebody had a similar knowledge base or belief system and they saw existence in the span of millions, if not billions of years, the rise and fall of a civilization would matter less than are they being fully present and true and authentic to their purpose and mission? If we are due for a golden age, and I absolutely feel we are, which is why I named my website Magic of Golden Age, then I don't want to say it doesn't matter what we do, but we're on track for that. And so we, we don't need to change who we are, what we're doing. And I would almost say that if it were the opposite, that we were on track for an imminent collapse and not a golden age, it would still be important to be present, be authentic, true to ourselves and our mission, the intention we set for our lifetime, this purpose. You know, if something is or isn't in the cards, that's like the realm of prophecy and probability. There's always a timeline and that timeline always has a trajectory. Sure, through the butterfly effect, we can often influence that trajectory, sometimes massively. But I feel like the, the biggest way to make sure we stay in a golden age timeline is really to honor that purpose that we have, that what's our greatest skill, our greatest ability to contribute, what building block are we putting in the castle? And if we feel we don't know that, or we feel our best path is to be super logical and rational and see what the greatest need of our civilization is and dedicate our lives to that, then maybe that's just the path for our purpose of a given time. I don't feel that the unique story of Atlantis will be the same story of our current era, but... I feel that it is worth being mindful of, you know, groupthink. You know, you, you could just put Atlantis' stuff down to groupthink, you know, to be super simple about it. And thankfully, with how connected we are and how decentralized the internet's becoming with blockchain evolution, I feel like it'll be much easier to have transparency and collaborative input in the directions our world is going. And I'm also grateful that as much as it's pitfalls, like, you know, everyone talks about the pharma and the military industrial war lobbies and power areas. I do feel that money talks. Governments often respond to, to money more than, you know, their citizens' votes or things. So I've always been a spiritual entrepreneur, and I'd love to help people do the same. Because sometimes one of the greatest ways we can impact the course of current events is through, you know, things related to moving money. You know, consciousness can affect probability, but if we want direct cause and effect, we can do things and pay people to do things that can have a tangible impact on the world and, of course, you know, support us to keep doing whatever we want to be doing. Yeah, I, I like that view. Your website and something you offer on there is really fascinating to me and I'm sure a lot of other people. And it's this mystical school that you have. You call it the wizard school. You know, you have like a, a couple of videos on there that you, you can access, you know, as a preview. And I just thought those were fascinating. They're so well done, too. You mentioned a few things in there that really grabbed me, you know, as soon as you were talking about them. And then you talked about this idea of having a like a peaceful and a calm state of consciousness helps you actually to do these lessons even more effectively. And I just wondered if you could talk about that briefly. Well, think about doing anything from a state of force or a state of too much excitement. You know, if we're too excited, we're not as rational. We don't plan as much. We might tend to go really intense and then burn out. I think about that not with a time at the gym where we pull a muscle and have to cut our workout short, or let's say a painting where we miss some of the details, or code where we're just so excited to get it done and we miss like little things that could be flaws that could just, you know, destroy and collapse and freeze the whole system. So with consciousness, you know, by nature, it's a bit drawn out, but the pitfalls that are becoming more commonplace with legalization of plant medicines and ethnogens is somebody gets in a high state of consciousness through exogenous means. They put something into their body and they blast off. They're like, oh my God, I touched the infinite. I'm unity. I'm God. I'm, I'm Archangel Michael, whatever. And they want to get back to that. So they take more and they take more and they take a ceremonial substance or medicinal substance, not with 
like mentor guided practices, not with good biochemical balancing, not with a thought plan at ritual. They just, you know, pop whatever thing. And doing that too much can burn out a system, can lead to a type of psychosis where your upper chakras are activated and dominant far more than your lower ones. So you're less balanced, you're less thoughtful, you're less evocative. And you're more like, oh my God, I'm going to go through the dimensions and summon in this this thing. And that can be successful. Like high magic can be positively impacted by an intelligent and safe use of psychedelics with all the boxes checked. But, you know, just like you might take creatine before a workout, you don't take creatine every time you go for a walk. You know, the state of body's in when it's at the gym intensely, you need recovery time. Doing a competition and really planning for that for a few days, you can do the competition really well, recover, do another one. But if you just push yourself, if you just take, say you take some crazy intense stimulant, you know, and then it jacks your heart like amphetamines and you take it too much and you collapse. I think the emotional drivers to escape the intense desires and attachment stemming from lack that drive people to try to fast track their spiritual development is not really the best path. Sure, we do want ups and downs in in our energy, but if you can access higher states of consciousness from just everyday calm, then you can use it in everyday life. If you're crossing the street and there's a driver and they have a stroke and their car gets out of control and you want to like be super present and influence things so you know their car you know stops safely and doesn't injure anybody or like stops and doesn't hit you or whatever um, or some massive hummer that would be damaged like blocks it from hitting you and have like instantly powerful magic you can't depend on a state of excitement for that stuff to work so somebody asked me this i was teaching a course on divine embodiment in china the other day uh, just through telepresence and the topic of gamma came up. So in, in brain states, you have beta, which is talking, everyday awareness. You have alpha, which is more relaxed, learning, memory, thinking. You have the delta, a deep meditative trance, and the lucidness of theta. But if you really can get there, you can get to an incredibly high state of gamma which is usually associated with more powerful types of manifestation. But this is not a sustainable state of consciousness for most people. However, if people meditate often enough and get familiar enough with gamma, they can just pop in there anytime they need. I think that is what a good disciplined training that can be you know, customized and tweaked for people can do is it can help them reach those higher states of consciousness without needing a week to prepare, without needing an ethnogen to blast off, without needing you know, a massively inspirational life moment. It just becomes part of life. Just like if, if you train your body well enough, you can do sprints any time of day and you won't get winded. But if you try to sprint you know, all the time, you eventually just won't be able to sprint for a while. I like that you gave like a, a practical use of magic. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure there's many more. I was thinking about how a lot of in some spiritual practices or spiritual traditions, I should say, they talk about not focusing on, you know, cities or, or special powers and how that can keep you stuck or trapped. And what are your thoughts about that as far as people who, I'm, I'm sure some people come who are not on a spiritual path and they just want to have special powers. And then I'm sure there's people that come that are on a spiritual path. What is your thought about you know, focusing on gaining special abilities might keep you stuck from evolving further. So I have a teacher named Henry Herzberger who translated the Yoga Sutras more properly than the common translation, which talks about getting stuck. Patanjali talked about these abilities, as did the Buddha, as just regular expanded human traits that we should seek for excellence, that they're special, but they're not special, that they're a desired part of life. The real quirk, and I don't know the Henry's Sanskrit translation offhand, so I'm not quoting him here, but the real pitfall is like any type of attachment. You don't want to be obsessively attached to a desire that can hamstring you, 
that can cause you to wrap your life around it. That can cause you to be addicted to it. It doesn't matter if it's a magical ability or Siddhi or alcohol or porn or approval or anything else. There are some people who do get obsessed about powers, but the pitfalls that happen in their life are the same pitfalls as if somebody were to get too obsessed with Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon, right? If their entire life revolved around it, they might not be able to relate to other folks. Their hygiene might slip. They might invest way too much money in that stuff. They might make that world more real than the world that they share with other people. Now, if their entire existence is full of Yu-Gi-Oh otakus, then that's completely fine. And if somebody's obsessed about levitation and that fills them with happiness and they only want to talk with other people obsessed with levitation, you know, that's their own free will and life choice. But generally, for a balanced, happy, sustainable, growing quality of life, um, balance is really important. And avoiding, you know, obsessive attachment is generally a good thing, whether it's, you know, whatever it's about. Yeah. So let's talk, let's go a little conspiracy theorist here <laughs> out of my curiosity. I love it. I'm yeah, so I mean, right I now. mean, we know that the governments have been, you know, training people in these different abilities. I mean, we have evidence of that, you know, coming out years later when all of this information has to be, you know, revealed. And I saw, I didn't know the n- name for this before. I saw in your blog about aerokinesis and kind of controlling weather, you know, and so I don't know. I was just curious, like, how much do you think, you know, these like government trained people? in you know the different countries around the world how much do you think they have maybe influenced weather patterns or things like this on our planet there's a power ladder right if you think about a bell curve somebody at the top 1% of skill is going to be able to do a lot more than somebody who's decently proficient but maybe not naturally gifted and who hasn't made this their life path Anytime I've read anything DARPA related, you know, government has technologies 20 years ahead of mainstream society. And there are obvious reasons for that, right? Like, say nuclear suitcases are feasible. We want to keep that technology kind of secret from people, even though if humanity were perfectly good, everyone's house could be powered by fission and that would be safe and fine. You know, it takes one bad person in 100,000 to nuke a a big city with, with that tech. So... I feel that whatever the government, whatever the motive, good, bad, you know, secret, not secret, I feel like there's a lot of ways of enhancing human capabilities and enhancing this stuff. There's also people who are naturally gifted. So, you know, say I went to a facility, I had clearance and I was approved and they put caps on me and they injected me with stuff and, you know, they did all the things. I might have one-fifth of the abilities of, say, somebody who's naturally, like, an avatar-level state. Like, there's a book called China's Super Psychics. It's It goes up every year. I got a PDF. Like, a few years ago, it was 50 bucks. Now it's, like, 250 bucks on Amazon. And it talks about people who can, like, push chopsticks through tables or buckets through concrete walls or teleport at will and heal cancer with a touch. Now, there's, there's always people in the world at the top, you know, 0.1% of abilities. And you know, fame and being kidnapped by rich families or governments is a thing. So people don't want to be in the limelight all the time. Richard Bach wrote a great book called Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah about how somebody got super high skilled and then everybody came to them for healings and everybody came expectant. You know, somebody's paralyzed and their legs are healed, but they still have a mole on their face. Now they're upset because, you know, their happiness set point went back. So I think there, there's a lot of people who could do things. Generally, though, you know, we, we have technology for a good reason. There are technological ways of reliably and consistently affecting the weather. And when you have technology that 20 people, that 50 people can control, you know, you could say that's almost safer than having one expert level person who'll do it. Because when you're this expansive in consciousness that you can create or stop a tornado, for example, it's very unlikely that you're going to be coerced to do something you don't want to do or even influenced by mind control substances. So we get into the realm of needing to make sure we can trust somebody's personality before we empower them. But if we have a machine and it's the right thing to do, then an organization can just have a business plan, an operational plan and do it. 
So I think there's there's an incentive to empower people, but not to empower people too, too much because it's much easier for a new director of some office to have full control of whether influencing technology than try to get so powerful they can overpower an individual who's been empowered for 20, 30, 40 years, yet still has free will. So I think there's a bit of a dance there. I do feel that there are accelerated ways to enhance development, you know, just like with fitness, which I think is a great concrete example because it's so relatable and common. So I love to help people accelerate on that path. I mean, there's, there's ways to purify the body, which are just faster and more optimal. There's certain types of meditation and meditation enhancers, like specific binaural beat tracks that just make deep meditation way easier. There's knowing what type of a brain scan to get where, that if somebody has the capital, knowing how well their brain is balanced, that's a big deal. You know, you can get your muscle fibers analyzed between fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. And if you genetically have more, you're predisposition for certain types of you know sports so i think there's ways of optimizing the speed at which somebody ascends in their own awareness and that's the stuff i love to find for people and i think any any organization can can find some of those things and accelerate it and you know if we're in the mystical it's not just technology that major nations can develop it's also you know things like amulets things like extremely good teachers who seek out and choose their students. It's also technology and psychic abilities that can, you know, potentially alter memories. So there, there's a lot of factors out here. And I, I think it's almost less of an important question that can governments do this. It's what change do we individually care about? And what's the most powerful person or organization in the world that has that thing? Right, because ultimately, if we want to create rainforests in the desert, it doesn't matter if the U.S. or China or Russia or Japan or Israel or you know Wakanda has superhuman enhancing tech. What matters is maybe there's a mystic in France who is ten times more powerful than any of that technology. If we X Y Z with the relationship, they'll just do it, and it'll look like nature, but it's really that. Where do you feel like the human species as, as we are right now, what do you feel like is the most pressing need in terms of where we could apply something like this? Like let, let's, say, let's say, for example, that people started to become more in tune with their you know, mystical abilities and their, their higher consciousness, and we started to be able to do more of these things which would appear as magic to us right now what would you think would be the most pressing need that the human species would need to focus on at that point? Yeah, good, really great question, Tim. I think there's two ways of looking at this. If we had a unified civilization, my answer would be harmony with the rest of the civilized galaxy. But we don't. We have a civilization where there's a lot of conflict and a lot of divide and a lot of tension and a lot of power grabs. So for the individual person listening, I would say, honestly, the most valuable thing to learn first is mastery over the body, the physical, emotional, energetic, everything. If we have mastery over our bodies, we can heal ourselves, we can extend our lifespans, we have enough of a healthy pineal gland that we know how to avoid danger, then we gain so much freedom. Mastery over the body means we can preserve it by transmuting energy and being breatharian, which tons of documentaries have shown is legit with all sorts of medical observances. Yeah, do you have to be a world-class level expert? Sure, but Roger Bannister was a world-class level expert. Now people running the four minute mile, you know, generally aren't in that category. So when we have mastery over our body, we don't need food, we don't need medicines, we don't need to live in certain types of climates. And so we have a certain type of freedom, right? Most people work to get money to pay for food and shelter and options in life of what to do and where to live. But when we have our own personal freedom of our body, then our choices are just so much more amplified. I think the second most important thing, and this is, I feel rather unique for the spiritual field, so I'm, I'm grateful that I'm doing it, but is uh, financial mastery as well. Like we live in a civilization where the energy of options is in money. 
just based on how our civilization is. It doesn't matter what's ideal. It doesn't matter what alternatives we can imagine. So financial mastery, I think, also provides a certain sense of freedom, which is why I'm very involved in cryptocurrency. And that's something I also offer in my mentoring because it, it's, again, it's with the topic of freedom. Alongside those, I would default back to what I was sharing earlier about life purpose because there's something that's unique to you and unique to everybody listening that they're more uniquely qualified to be the best in the world at. And I think they're going to have a much bigger advantage strengthening that. For some people, it might be the role of a healer or teaching others how to heal who listen to this. For other folks, it might be working in government and helping to bring about more harmony in that sphere. For yet others, it might be um, certain protocols like the CE5, which are shown to be very effective at communicating with off-world civilizations. We're not like a binary species. It's not like if we just learn how to make the perfect hard-boiled egg, we'll be saved, right? Like there's all these things we need to have going on, right? There's some people who naturally, if they became a master of horticulture and of helping people live off the land sustainably, that's so needed to like break out of the clutches of you know, toxic agribusiness. There's thankfully a lot of areas we need so we don't all have to become, um, you know, master painters. You know, my experience is that on the planet, we're going through a shift and that the vibration is rising. Probably in the last decade, I really noticed, you know, the difference energetically and how within my clients, within myself, how much easier some of these abilities have become as the planetary vibration is shifting and more people are awakening into this higher collective consciousness. And so things like telepathy or so forth that used to be not so common are becoming much more commonplace. Is that your belief slash experience as well? Do you think that more of these gifts are naturally even going to be awakening for people to where say 10, 20 years from now, like, oh yeah, telekinesis. Yeah, of course. Or, you know, or telepathy. Yeah. You know, what is your thought? Like, how do you see it moving forward? For sure. So Sri Yukteswar, who is the guru of Paramahansa Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi, who was reportedly the guru of Steve Jobs, who left that book to everybody at his funeral. So big nod from, you know, a Titan. Yukteswar said that the city should be commonplace in a certain period of time. And at that time, we'd all be able to do, you know, telepathy, you know, just like most of us can read. And it'd be just everywhere. And he said that year was about 4200 BCE. So whether he was on target, whether he was off target, if you look at human civilization, 300 years ago, most people couldn't read. 100 years ago, most people couldn't type. So... To say that 100 years from now, could most people be doing telekinesis? It depends how civilization evolves. For civilization to naturally evolve, for that to be like a natural evolution on a certain timeline, I think that's fine. I think that's, that's legit. But just like, you know, Japan wasn't too technically advanced and neither was China and then the U.S. and Western influences came in and they caught up and in many ways surpassed us in certain aspects of technological proficiency. I feel like if enough people push this stuff, that timeline and that path can be accelerated. Uh, I think telekinesis is really fun. It's still easier to go over and pick something up. And the amount of impact that the average person can have telekinetically, you know, you see telekinesis groups and there's all these groups and they're spinning a tinfoil thing with a glass chamber on it. They're like, oh, I can move something that weighs like one tenth of a gram and spin it under these very specific circumstances. Yay, good for you. Like, oh my gosh, telekinesis. But like eventually get over it. Right? It just like you hit puberty, you're a teenager. At some point, most people choose to have a sexual experience. Before that, it's everything. And then after 10, 20, 30, 40, you know, it hopefully is still good, but it's not like world shattering, right? So when I was getting like super into aerokinesis and super into hydro and telekinesis, I was excited, but I found a limit to how quickly my power could grow. I don't think those same power limits are on healing. I think there's certain reasons for this. I think the next Matrix movie is actually going to like allude to that stuff, which is really cool. So honestly, for that, I would just look at that through a practical lens. Like, what can we accelerate? Do we really want to put our culturally influencing efforts 
to boosting that or boosting another one. Now, pro-telekinesis is, well, that's super inspiring. It's super flashy magic. If you could choose to be a master telekinetic or heal people instantly of cancer over a 20-year time period of development, what would you want? And some people would say telekinesis just excites them more. And we, we need that, right? Like we have, we have entertainers in the world and they serve a purpose. They bring joy, right? And in the cosmic multiverse path, dying and getting sick isn't a big deal. We all are going to do it hundreds of thousands of times. So we don't need everybody to be a healer. But I, I do think it's a choice. I think ultimately what timeline we're on right now, I think more people are going to be telekinetic. I have met a lot of folks who have had enough experiences and they've learned to trust their intuition that has just occurred you know enough people are into health and into knowing what micronutrients are and are not present in their foods the natural healthy state of the human body is one that is continuously psychic the amount of energy we need to manipulate with our consciousness to achieve a successful psychic transmission is less than what it is for telekinesis and just taking a second to understand that it's like, okay, how much ATP does it take to lift five pounds versus 20 pounds? How about in a bicep curl versus an overhead press versus a squat versus, you know, a, an ab crunch, right? And it's like, okay, we, that, that takes a second to figure out, but it's not impossible to figure out. And once we do, we know like, oh, okay, I can lift 100 pounds of this exercise and 50 with that. And we're like, okay, if I want to lift 100 pounds of this exercise, I need to train, it'll take a while. I think it's really in the hands of each of us to do stuff and to talk about it and then to teach it in an effective way, effective both commercially and teaching wise to inspire others to do it and to make it happen. Um, I'm actually talking with another investor right now who might help me expand my, my impact and my reach. So that's a great question, Tiana, because I'm thinking like, how do I want to impact culture through teaching this stuff? I have one more question that I want to ask you, because uh, this is one that I, I ponder on for myself a lot, because certainly, you know, over the years, I learned about, you know, conscious creation and so forth. And I use my energy and intention to focus in a certain way to have certain experiences through my intention. But then I also have a lot of really wonderful experiences about not holding a specific intention and just being a pure conduit for the divine will and trusting the divine will and being open and having much more amazing things that I could have even imagined come to me versus the way that my individual will would focus on a particular intention. And so where, where do you find that balance between your own individual will and intention and focusing on that and being just a pure, open conduit for a much greater divine will and trusting that? <sighs> so grateful you asked that. I feel we are divine at our core. I feel we're multidimensional. So we're unity consciousness, we're divine, we're angelic, we're quantum, we're energetic, we're three-dimensional. As we're more aligned, as we're more in tune with our higher, greater self, our divinity, our unique divinity shines through. As we learn to trust that, until we've learned to trust it, we might externalize that divinity and give it a name, Lakshmi, Aphrodite, Thoth, Apollo, Krishna, the aspect of Christ consciousness or Buddha consciousness. As we own that, as we internalize that, as we embody that, we become more divine. We become more that. That is a massive parallel existence between intention and surrender. That is an absolute knowing of that higher intuitive self existing in any present moment. And the ego personality only being aware of how the expression is received by others. And that perfect level of authenticity carries so much energy that it can naturally be triggering for people who don't have the capacity, who aren't in that state. Yet, we all know it deep down. We all know the truth of that, that richness of how the divine shows up in us. And so it, it takes courage and it takes authentic expression and it takes an intentional desire and will but I feel embodying the divine is more valuable than any other way we could conceive of being because it's, it's the highest and most empowered version of ourselves that we could be.
Absolutely. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, for sure, Tim. So uh, I'm on Instagram at Sorcerer David, S-O-R-C-E-R-E-R. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash david.magic.solomon. Uh, I'm on Linktree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sorcerer David. I am at magicalgoldenage.com. I'm at youtube.com slash magic is real. I'm also Sorcerer David on TikTok. And I'm David Magic Solomon on LinkedIn. So the best link for people with all my stuff is my link tree. Most people can find it on Instagram a little bit easier than typing in a URL. So again, that's Sorcerer David on Instagram. And that has a link tree portal that has access to all my stuff. So if, if somebody's curious about mentoring, you know, most people know deep down in their hearts if it's right for them to begin a path of consistent study. Most people know in their hearts if they want a healing session or to be trained to be a healer or maybe several sessions to clear a major block. And I think there's some people who are looking for training or work opportunities. And I do have both of those available. I am looking for people who really want to seriously train and dedicate themselves and who want to build a career aspect in the field of learning, studying, teaching magic. I do attract a lot of people who want to be teachers, who want to be mentors like I'm doing. And so I, I do get a lot of people who want to essentially train professionally for that and that state of alignment is a, a really fun and lovely one to pass on. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time to come on and talk with us and for sharing everything that you shared with us. So thanks again. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate both of you. Thanks, yeah. Tiana. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Illusion. I'd like to say thank you very much to David Solomon for taking the time to share his knowledge and gifts with us. If you want to learn more about him and the services he offers, you can find him on Instagram as Sorcerer David, or you can visit his website, MagicalGoldenAge.com. His book, Magic is Real, can also be found on Amazon. Speaking of books, you can also find a book on Amazon that I've been enjoying every evening called Awakening Transformation, A Beginner's Guide to Becoming Your Higher Self by our very own Tiana Roser. I'd also like to say thank you to Diana for all the work she does to keep this podcast going. And thank you to Casey Henson for the music. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, please check out our website, beyondtheillusionpodcast.com. And if you really feel inspired, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. This will help other people find us. Thank you and take care.